This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We invite Grace to stage. She's going to go through our passage this morning before Stuart brings us the word. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the grass of the... Ooh, no. Look at the birds of the field. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of them. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall I eat, or what shall I drink, or what shall I wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, store up my, my word that I might not sin against you. That's what the scriptures say. And that's a terrific thing to be able to store up all of that scripture and uh, to be able to apply it to our lives. So if you've got your Bibles there, I hope that you'll have them open at the section that um, has just been spoken to us. And uh, we're going to be looking at... Uh, uh, verses 9 to from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through to uh, uh, verse 34. Uh, now, I know from talking to Matt that Analdo uh, dealt with the first few verses uh, last week, and uh, that's okay because, in order to understand what we're looking at this week, we need to go back over and just spend a little bit of time looking at what you looked at last week as well. So, that's what we're going to be doing. So, the passage is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. I hope it's there in your uh, in, in, in front of you at the moment and uh, why don't we pray for ourselves so let's pray our heavenly father it's common for us to come to your word and to find it counterintuitive countercultural to find that it, it, it challenges parts of our life that are deep-seated and hidden from view, that we come to your word and it makes us uncomfortable. And so we look for ways to avoid it, ways to explain it away or excuse it. But Father, we don't want that to be true today. As we listen and think about and reflect upon these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that they would be words that sink deep into our hearts and minds. 
that they might be words that speak truth to us, that they might be words that we go away and respond in repentance and faith to in order that we might live holy and righteous lives before you. For we pray these things in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. Luke, when he writes his gospel, tells a story of a wealthy man coming to see Jesus. He's searching for contentment, uh, for assurance that his life is not going to be confined to these few short years that we have on earth, but will be an eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it was the wrong question, of course. Uh, the correct question would have been, what can God do to grant me eternal life? But Jesus responds to the well-meaning but muddle-headed question with a command. He says to him, I want you to go and I want you to sell everything that you have and I want you to come and follow me. It's a deliberate challenge to the man's belief that he was a good man and a keeper of God's law and therefore was living exactly the way that God wanted him to live. Because Luke records that the wealthy man went away sad because he had no intention of giving away all that he owned and giving it to the poor. He was a very wealthy man, Luke says, and wealth was his idol. A little over 200 years after that exchange between Jesus and the wealthy man, there was a young man, just 18, 19 years of age, recently orphaned, who was sitting in church when he heard that portion of scripture being read in the church service. His response to that section of scripture was to go out and to give away almost his entire inheritance. He gave the fields that he's inherited from his parents away to, his, to the fellow villagers. He took the proceeds of the sale of all of his goods and his possessions and gave it to the poor and he left only enough for the care of his younger sister. And then he went outside the village in which he was living to work with his hands, to supply himself with sufficient to eat, and everything else that he made he gave away to the poor. After a while he moved from outside the village to a tomb, and he lived in a tomb for a while before he then moved off for 20 years to a ruined military outpost. By that stage, he'd given away even those monies that he had set aside for the care of his sister because he'd been in church another day and he'd heard the words of Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, which we heard today, do not worry about tomorrow. And so he gave it all away. It is that kind of a passage. Radical, all-encompassing, searching in the way in which it challenge us, challenges us to think about our response not only to God but our response to the world and to the things that are around us that God has given us. The name of that young man was Anthony. The way of life obviously agreed with him. He lived to be over a century. But his practice of radical discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, his practice of radical sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus, you may or may not agree with what he did. His interpretation, his application is not an application that each one of us needs to follow by any means. But he was taking seriously the commands of Jesus. 
He was asking himself the question, how ought I to respond and now live in the light of what I have just heard from God's word? And so it's my hope and my prayer that that is exactly going to be true for us today. Now, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has um, been dealing in the first half of the chapter with religious hypocrites, the Pharisees. And in the second half of the chapter, though, he turns his attention to those who would be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to address them in terms of the, the danger, the temptation of rampant materialism. That it's all very well to be scathing about the Pharisees and their religious hypocrisy. But what about the disciples of Jesus and their desire to worship not only God, but wealth? And the point of the passage that we're looking at this morning all comes down to the question of who you are going to serve. As Bob Dylan sang, if you're going to have to serve somebody, maybe the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're still going to have to serve somebody. And Jesus throughout the sermon has been focusing on the state of our heart. He's been focusing on what you might call heart righteousness as opposed to Pharisee righteousness. And so he says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that lust is the same as adultery. He says that anger is the same as murder. And now he comes at this section that we're looking at in the second half of Matthew 6. He comes to the core of his message and he asks his disciples, he asks you and I the question, who are you going to give your heart to? We use the language, don't we, when we speak of love, that who are you giving your heart to? Somebody stole my heart or I lost my heart to it. It's that kind of language that Jesus is using to challenge us to think about our relationship with God. To whom have you given your heart? Uh, as I said earlier, when I was interviewed, Pauline and I have been married now for just over 40 years, but we were in a, in a home group, a Bible study group, for a number of years uh, in a church that we used to be in. And uh, at that stage, we were in our 40s, and uh, there were a group of, uh, of... There were couples. We had five couples, and a corresponding number of children, and we used to meet every second Sunday. It was absolute chaos, but, uh, but it was fun. And one day, the blokes, all of us were married. We'd all been married for about 20 years at that stage, and we were talking about when we first fell in love with and met our wives. And we were telling stories about the way in which we used to, uh, to, to behave when we first met our wife. One of the guys lived in Queensland. He said... On a Friday night after work, I would get in my car and I would drive right through the night because he worked in far north Queensland. I would drive right through the night, he said, down to Brisbane. I'd arrive in Brisbane at six in the morning in time for breakfast. And he said, I would spend the weekend with my wife to be. We were going out at that stage. I'd spend the weekend with her. And then Sunday night, I would get back in the car and I would drive all the way back and arrive home at six in the morning in order to start work. There was someone else in the group who said that he used to meet up with his girlfriend at the time and now became his wife. They used to meet, they decided, every second night. They were both university students and so they needed to do some study and so they decided that they would meet every second day. He said they used to meet at six in the evening and they would sit up and talk until somewhere around 4.35 in the morning. 
And he said he would walk home and he would watch the jockeys at Randwick Racecourse doing track work as he was walking home before he went off to uni. We were all in our 40s and to be honest it left us exhausted thinking about what we used to do. Uh, we look back from the perspective of being in our 40s thinking, good grief, how on earth could we have managed it? Why did we do it? How extraordinary? And yet we all knew why we'd done it. Because what seems to be foolish extravagance to someone is absolutely necessary when you're in love. It's true, isn't it? What seems to be foolish extravagance to someone if you're in love, it can often seem to be complete necessity. Now that's really the point that Jesus is going to be um, drawing us to today. That when we are in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, the kind of life that he calls us to, the kind of sacrifices he asks us to make, the kind of discipleship that he looks for from us, someone from the outside... Someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who's not a believer, could well look in and say, that is completely stupid. What folly. How foolish. And yet for those who are in love, we recognise that it is nothing but necessity. Single-minded devotion. God commanded of the people of Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus named that as the chief, the first of the commandments. He put it even ahead of the second commandment, namely to love your neighbour as yourself. And so what we're looking at in these verses from 19 to 34 is we're looking at Jesus' demand for single-minded, single-hearted, whole-hearted devotion to God. He provides us, uh, as you would have seen last week, with three brief contrasts between treasure, I and master. Each image contrasts two attitudes to wealth in particular. But what's on view is not only wealth, but any kind of alternative to God. What is on view is not simply money, but anything which can become an idol. Paul describes the love of money as being idolatrous. And so it's no surprise that Jesus here focuses on wealth, but he has any form of idolatry, any form of heart love that might usurp the place of God in your life. Each contrast makes exactly the same point. We must decide, will we serve Jesus single-mindedly or will we be double-minded in our Christian service? He talks about two kinds of treasure in verses 19 to 21. We're not going to spend long on that. Storing up treasure means more than simply, of course, possessing. He's not commanding that we possess nothing. Anthony, for all of his zeal, was not necessarily right in his application of these verses. His focus, though, is upon how we invest our time and our effort and our energy. Will we invest our time and our effort and our energy into the accumulation of treasure here on earth? Real estate and shares, lifestyle and experiences... Will our focus be on the accumulation of such treasures or will we invest in the kingdom of heaven? In gospel ministry, in the lives of people. Because be assured of this, Jesus says, verse 21, where you store your treasure is going to be the perfect indication of where your heart lies. Second contrast is on what you set your eyes in verses 22 to 23. 
They're not the easiest words, I think, of Jesus to make sense of. But in this context, he appears to be using eyes as a synonym for our heart. We might say that we've set our heart on something, but we might also say, I've got my eye on something. In both cases, what we mean is that we've set our love upon something. And so in this context, Jesus is saying that true health is found when we fix our eyes on God. Single focused, not an unhealthy eye, which seeks to, to look across at more than one, but single vision, not double vision in our following of Christ. And the third contrast is easier, I think, two masters. You cannot serve both. Jesus says you'll love one and hate the other or you'll hate one and you'll love the other, but you cannot love both. You need to decide. You cannot serve two masters. It's God or someone else. Going back into the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is facing up to the uh, priests and the prophets of Baal, which was the, the pagan god that the people of Israel were being tempted to worship. Now, the people of Israel weren't turning aside from the worship of God so much as adding to the worship of God. They wanted to worship Yahweh, the God who had brought them up out of Egypt, yes, but they wanted to worship Baal as well. They thought they'd have a bet each way. And so they were worshipping God and they were worshipping Baal. And so Elijah calls them to Mount Carmel. And you know the great story. He says to the, to the priests of Baal, he says, there's your sacrifice, put it out on the um, on the altar and then pray to Baal and whoever, whichever God comes down and ignites the sacrifice, you know that that's the true God. So the priests of Baal danced and cut themselves and yelled and prayed. Elijah stood on the outside and mocked. He said, maybe he's at the toilet. Maybe you've got to wait for him to come back. Shout a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. Hours and hours and hours it went on, this frenzy of religious activity, and it resulted in nothing. Elijah steps forward, he demands that the sacrifice to the Almighty God be doused in water and then he prays to God and what happens? Fire from heaven comes down and ignites the entire sacrifice. But then, then Elijah turns to the people of Israel and he says, you've seen that, now let me tell you. And he says literally, stop hopping from one foot to the next. Stop worshipping both and trying to have a bed each way, stop hopping from one foot to the next. If Baal is God, go and worship him. But if the Lord is God, then worship him alone. Stop hopping, Jesus is saying, from one foot to the next. The worship of wealth or putting a priority in your career or in your lifestyle or in your fashion or, or even in your family. Put God first you can only serve one master now we often don't believe that do we it's here in the bible but we read that and we think oh yes but we don't actually believe that many of us I think deep down believe or at least hope that we can do both serve God first but just keep a little bit of devotion aside for wealth for lifestyle, for fashion, for career, for family, for whatever it might be, for the things that money can buy. But Jesus says no. His call is to single-minded discipleship. Make up your mind. Who has Lord over you? If you don't want Jesus to have Lordship over you, fine, go. But if you recognise that Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life, 
that he is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved, then serve him alone. So all of that finally brings us to Jesus' conclusion in verses 25 to 34. And it's really the application of what we have just looked at. And the heart of the section is down in verse 34. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, where Jesus says, uh, well, verses 33 and 34, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's what Jesus is exhorting us to do, to be single-minded toward God, to serve only one master, store up treasure in only one place, have a single focused vision so that we seek God's kingdom. We seek God's righteousness. We seek God's glory and that is our heart's desire. That is the focus of our lives and everything else will come into perspective accordingly. And the alternative is to run after material things. Not that Jesus is saying we shouldn't be concerned with them. We all need to eat, we need to drink, we need to clothe ourselves and many things besides. This world that God has made for us is a rich world, an enjoyable world, a world that we're commanded to engage with and to enjoy. But Jesus says when you become focused on those things, then anxiety and worry will be your lot. Do not worry about such things. Don't fret about them. Jesus' contrast is with hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He says there's the choice. You can fret after, you can hunger after possessions and lifestyle and all the things that our world offers or you can hunger and thirst after God and his kingdom and his righteousness but you've got to serve one or the other and you cannot serve both. He uses food and drink as an example of course. He goes on to talk about clothing, those basic things of life. Masterchef uh, Judge George Columbaris is probably more open than many when he said everyone has their own religion, their own beliefs. Some are Buddhists. I don't care, it's up to them, but my religion is food. Is not life more than food? Jesus asks. Surely life doesn't consist in the fullness of your belly. Now, most people don't settle for anything quite as limited as food to devote themselves to. Food and drink and clothing are really the tip of the iceberg. That's what Jesus is referring to. But for us, of course, we understand that it is more subtle than that. It's not just whether I'll have enough food. It's not just whether I'll have to drink. It's not just whether I have enough to, to, to wear. But wealth buys me lifestyle. And that is something which can easily preoccupy my attention. Uh, when I was um, in my 40s, had teenage children, and I was working in, I was a pastor, parish minister, working in full-time ministry. And um, one, of my, one of my daughters was keen to own a horse. 
And I remember one day, she really was genuinely keen. She just loves horses, loves all animals. And she said to me one day, she said, I wish you'd stayed as a lawyer just a little bit longer to allow me to afford to buy a horse. Now, I have to tell you, at that point, my heart broke. And I went away and I started wondering about the decision that I had made because I saw the cost that it was being imposed on one someone who I loved so much. Because wealth buys us things, doesn't it? Buys us some good things. And covetousness can be something which enters into our heart and our soul to make us bitter and dissatisfied with the life of discipleship. Wealth buys me respect. Whether it's the brand new BMW or the overseas trips or the lovely home or just the restaurants that I can eat at or the lifestyle that I can enjoy. And wealth opens doors. Opens doors to opportunity, it opens doors to education, it opens doors to, to, in Sydney to where you live. It brings us security. It's easy, I think, to be unconcerned about your security when you've got plenty of security. Often I hear people talk to me and say, oh, just, just, you don't have to worry about wealth. Money will soon follow. No, it doesn't soon follow if you don't have it. It's easy to be unconcerned about security when you have plenty. When your capacity to earn enough money means that you will never really feel at risk. But when following Christ brings financial insecurity, leaves you exposed and vulnerable, dependent on the grace of others, it is so tempting, it is so alluring to worry about what you will eat or drink or wear, to run after material possessions, to obsess over wealth and to make decisions that are shaped by that anxious desire to fulfil your need for security to allow the pursuit of these things to shape how we live and order our affairs. The great German reformer Martin Luther said, whenever the gospel is taught and people seek to live according to it, there are two terrible plagues that always arise. First plague, false teachers who corrupt the teaching, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second plague to arise, Luther describes or calls Sir Greed, who obstructs right living. I knew of a church that uh, had uh, quite a substantial amount of money set aside in a savings account, a term deposit. It was money that had been there for years and it was money that could never be touched. It didn't matter that the church was on hard times. It didn't matter that the church couldn't afford to, to invest in ministry. This was money that was literally called a rainy day fund. The fund that we have because we're not so sure that God will provide because we're worried about tomorrow. And the treasurer of the church came to me one day. I was the pastor. And he said, said Stuart, we're going to get rid of the rainy day fund. I said, that's a terrific idea. I said, let's go for it. He said, yes, he said, I want us. He said, he brought along this old, um, back, back then you used to get these old posters and they'd have this pious little Bible verse at the bottom and a cutesy photograph. And this one had a little cute kitten 
with one claw hanging onto a curtain. And he said, and the quote was about faith. He said, he said that's how we're going to live, Stuart. One claw in the curtain. That's the only thing that's going to keep us. I said, that is a terrific way to live. That is what it means to live by faith. He said, yes. And he said, we're going to live like that for your stipend as well, Stuart. And I gulped and I said, yes, that's right. Because we cannot worry about tomorrow when it means that we do not seek first the kingdom of God. So how might we conclude? My own experience over 40 odd years of being a Christian is that the pull to serve two masters, the challenge of where my heart really lies, I have to say I don't think it ever goes away. I'd like to be able to say to you it does. Most of you, I think, are younger than me. Not all of you, I suspect, but most. I'd like to say to you, when you get into your 60s, it's, um, it gets easier. That uh, the pull to serve another master just disappears, but I don't think it does. To be in your 30s and unable to provide for your family and to give them the things that you would love to give them. To be in your 50s and lie awake at night wondering how you are going to live if sickness or accident strikes. To be in your 60s and wonder why your retirement plans are so different to the retirement plans of so many family and friends because you've made decisions to be generous over your life. You've made decisions to sacrifice career opportunities over your life simply because you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus commands us not to worry precisely because he knows that we will. He commands us not to worry precisely because he knows that that is the great temptation that we have. And when we give in to that temptation, we begin to shape the way in which we live, the decisions we make about our life, the course that our life is going to take. We begin to shape it around not seeking first God's kingdom, not seeking first his righteousness, not seeking first the glory of God and to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, but seeking first our security, seeking first our lifestyle, seeking first the kudos that comes with a career that is fast-tracked making decisions that serve another master and worry about tomorrow can impact your discipleship worry about tomorrow can impact your discipleship let me suggest a few ways only a few can make you niggardly and mean-spirited when you are worried about tomorrow it can make you lacking in generosity when you are worried about tomorrow. At a micro level, it can make you the last person to pull your wallet out in a cafe when there's a group and someone has to pay. Have you ever been in that situation? It can make you the person who just slowly reaches for your wallet or fumbles around in your handbag. It's got to be in here somewhere as you're watching to see if someone else will pay. At a broader, perhaps more serious level, it can make you hesitate to commit to support of that missionary or unwilling to put yourself under pressure to help finance that new worker because you're worried about tomorrow and how you're going to eat and drink and Christian discipleship seems inconsistent with planning for and preparing for tomorrow it can also make you manipulative 
You can use people for financial benefit and what they can provide for you. You can use your career for financial benefit and what it can provide for you. You become a taker, not a giver. I'm in this for what I can get out of it rather than what I can put into it. And so people even become the stepping stones in our, in our jobs by which we can make our security and our future secure and we can be free from anxiety and worry. And perhaps most seriously of all, it makes us withdraw from Christian service, either completely or oftentimes simply to, to be in an easier ministry or an easier area of service to make a decision about where we will be engaged in serving Christ in such a way that it won't conflict with my career, that it won't be something which means that my lifestyle is not as conducive as I would like it to be, that it will be an area of ministry which will cost me less because I'm worried about tomorrow and the impact it might have on, on me. I wish I could say that as I said, following Christ for decades, it gets any easier. I think it just every day you have to make that decision. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, it may be the Lord. Maybe wealth, it may be the Lord. It may be career, it may be the Lord. It may be lifestyle, it may be the Lord. It may be security, it may be the Lord. It may be your future, it may be the Lord. But you do have to serve somebody. And Jesus is uncompromising. There is only one master. What is Jesus' answer to the worry? If I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, if I'm not going to obsess over what I eat or drink or wear. First question, of course, that we always ask ourselves is, well, where is all, where's it all going to come from? If I just trust God, where's it all going to come from? And the answer that Jesus gives is that it'll come from God. Notice verses 25 to 27. And see what he says. Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in burn, barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? So don't worry, he says, God will provide. And don't worry because it doesn't work. I had a friend when I was studying who used to always say to me, Stuart, remember when at exam time, worry won't work, waffle will. Now, I don't think he was right about the waffle, but he was right about the worrying not work. Who can add a single hour to their life? Who can add a centimetre to their height? It's a nonsense, isn't it? Worry doesn't work. But worry fails to acknowledge that God is the provider, that he's the giver and the sustainer of life, that God will provide for you. Now let me say that if you are someone who struggles with anxiety, then these words are going to cut deeper into you than they will into someone else who's perhaps sitting next to you and doesn't struggle with anxiety. We need to be careful not to confuse anxiety disorder with a lack of faith. That's the great temptation. That's where someone who's anxious immediately goes. You hear these words of Jesus, but I still feel anxious. I still feel worried. 
I still feel the panic attack coming. I still feel the stomach knotted. I still feel the physical effects. My mind is still racing. Oh, all you need to do is to trust God. And that just adds to the guilt. I am trusting God, but it's not working. This teaching of Jesus is much harder for someone who is anxious than for someone who is not. I've met people who are very carefree, just the way they're wired, their personality, they're very carefree. You talk to them about tomorrow, they say, I should be right. Now, part of that is they're trusting God, and I think that's terrific. Praise God for it. But a part of it also is the way that they approach life. It's just the way they're wired. For the anxious person, yes, I do trust God. But I still feel worried. You see, the difference is not faith. The difference is not faith. The difference is not confidence in God. The difference is not walk with God. The solution is not trust more. The difference is not faith, it's the disorder. But for all of us, those of us who are anxious by personality and who struggle in that area and those of us who are not, Jesus' point is a plain one. God will provide. And it may be harder for someone who is anxious to take hold of that verse and to live out the Christian life. Well, all credit to them for doing it. But God does provide. It's not a reason for us to be idle, not a reason for us to take no financial responsibility, but it is a reason to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what's meant to preoccupy us if it's not worry about tomorrow? What's to dominate my thoughts and to shape my character and to determine the course of my life? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Verse 33. And all these things will be added. John Stott asks the question, what is your ambition? Now, When I was a teenager, my ambition was to be a bass player in a famous rock band or to become a foreign correspondent working overseas for the ABC. Now, I was particularly unsuited to either of those occupations, but it was nonetheless my great ambition. When I grew up a little bit and I was at uni, my ambition was to be a university history lecturer or a lawyer in a small country town where I did the drink driving for the postman and the divorce for the butcher. But something intervened in those dreams. Something changed my ambitions. I read those words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I read a biography by a, about a Christian missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. Played cricket for England, wealthy man, became a missionary in China and then in Africa. He was asked by a reporter why he'd done it. Why he gave up the security of tomorrow, the wealth and the lifestyle, in order to live a life of, in worldly terms, such insecurity as a missionary. And C.T. Studd said these words. He said, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. See, those are words of faith. 
whether you're anxious or not an anxious person, they are words of faith. They are words that recognise the deep love that God has first shown to us, that he did not spare his own son but gave him for us. They are words that recognise that we cannot serve two masters, but if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Is that your ambition? Will it remain your ambition when the siren call of mortgages and superannuation and lifestyle begin to sing to you? Will you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Recognise in your own experience, therefore, the joy of knowing that God is no one's debtor, that God does provide. And will you persevere in that discipleship, however God has wired you? Not worrying about tomorrow, or if you do, still acting for tomorrow, knowing that God will provide. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these confronting words of the Lord Jesus and we pray that you might make them sink deep into our hearts and minds, that you would not allow us to walk away from this, this, this particular portion of your word and go away unchanged men and women. But may we think and reflect carefully and well, we pray. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that in your goodness and your mercy, you might do a good work in each one of us. That for those of us who are anxious by nature, that you might give us the courage to still live as single-minded disciples of the Lord Jesus. But whoever we are, grant that we might serve the one true master, we pray. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.